talk about an uphill battle. 2,000 acres of beans and cattle. But he don't ever get rattled. He just goes to the sun goes down. This is Greg Bloom. Welcome to another episode of Food Chat. Food Chat podcast is all about reconnecting you to food. And if you've listened to past episodes, you've been able to meet um, producers of food, farmers, ranchers, uh, restaurant owners, food ingredient makers, all kinds of people connected to the food chain. Well, today I'm so excited to have Allie Cox on Food Chat. And Allie Cox is an agriculture and food ingredient marketing visionary and founder of Noble West. Allie, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me, Greg, and thanks for the, for the, for the lofty introduction. Yeah, well, I want to hear more about you. So let's just start off, Allie, by um, having you tell our listeners more about yourself and why you started Noble West. Sure. Uh, I am a fifth-generation farmer, and and actually my husband and I are farmers as well. Um, and I was looking to marry my 20 years of experience in marketing, um, 10 of which were in New York City, mm-hmm. with my passion for agriculture and passion for the food system, mm-hmm. and found that um, there was a need because clearly farmers are looking to make more money for the hard work that they put in and for the, you know, their yield goals that they're lo- they're looking to hit. And then of course, consumers have questions about how their food is grown and where their food is grown. And um, I definitely want to make sure that we can be very additive and help the food supply system and um, truly apply more value to almost every bite we eat so that um, especially right now when food is so expensive um, in the stores and in restaurants, um, we want to make sure that consumers um, understand why they're eating what they're eating um, and why it actually costs what it does. Right. Well, you know, you and I have something in common. I grew up on a farm too, and um, I still have lots of friends that farm for a living. I don't. I'm in the food business, but I don't mm-hmm. produce food. Um, you know, one thing I have found, Allie, um, that you can talk about is a lot of my farm friends do not like to like go on social media, make their own YouTube channel, um, tell mm-hmm. their story. They're very reluctant. Maybe it's because sometimes it's guess they're just so busy. Sometimes they're just a little shy. But what mm-hmm. what challenges do you find in getting food producers uh, to tell their story? Well, you know, I think that I'm hearing lots of different things in your question. And I think the first part is, I don't know if we should assume that maybe they should be creating YouTube channels or they should be doing social media because Mm. quite frankly, they're probably not skilled. And if I think back to, you know, my family history and also, you know, our farming, our farming, um, our farming neighbors and my my, my husband, I mean, there's absolutely nothing he would like less than to go do that. Right. Mm. Um, we, and one of the things that, you know, farm, the reason why farmers are farmers is because they are resilient and they weather change and they weather risk and they weather the actual weather. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is what makes them so uniquely qualified as, um, as business people, quite frankly. And, Mm. I mean, how many other industries are there out there where you spend all your money every year and you're not quite sure what you're going to get back until the end of the year? I mean, that's crazy, right? Mm -hmm. The risk associated with that. Um, And so 
I think that what's that term, um, you know, don't count your chickens before they hatch. I mean, farmers have no idea what's going to hatch. You have no idea what's going to happen. So why would I tell anybody about it on social media, for goodness sakes? I think that's the mindset that a lot of farmers have. And um, I don't blame them. I think there's also um, the big question is like, who owns the story? Is it the farmer's story or is it the food story? And is like you just mentioned, you're in the food industry. And your farmers are in the ag industry and farmers are in the ag industry. I'd argue farmers are in the food industry. And we work through that with a lot of our clients. Like you're in the food industry. You need to market like you're selling a food and you need to market um, the product as if consumers have lots of questions. And, and that's really what we help our clients with is understanding how to get their story told and um, particularly food manufacturers and food processors. Uh, this might be, this might be, lead us up for a different kind of conversation. But I think it, I think the job is on them, quite frankly, because they are working directly with the retailers, private label, private label um, retailers and marketing those food ingredients. So I actually think that's part of it. And if they want to utilize on-farm stories to help kind of monetize that initiative, then farmers should be compensated because it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of effort to have camera crews and social media crews on their, on their, on their farms. Yeah, I agree. I've had some guests on that are uh, farmers and ranchers or food producers um, of some sort, and they're really not the best communicators of the what consumers need to hear and the questions a consumer would have. Some are good, some are not good. So I agree with you there. Yeah. Why don't you tell us about what you do specifically at Noble West to help farmers build brands and go to market and communicate so that people actually know about where their food comes from? The majority of our clients are what we call out on the West Coast as grower packer shippers. I'm not sure if that is, I don't know if that's a universal term, but they're grower packer shippers. So they typically own the land or rent the land. They grow the food. They, um, harvest it they bring it to the mill or the packing house or the shed or the facility they'll um and then they'll clean it and then they'll sell it and they'll Mm. they'll ship it off typically in bulk um however and we help our clients tell that story so that they can get a better um better price for their product and then obviously of course then we'll hopefully um, compensate the farmers in that grow return um appropriately we also work with a lot of our clients to create um, to create consumer packaged goods. So mm-hmm. we care a lot about that. We call it a hero food ingredient, which means that there's probably less than three ingredients in whatever the product is. So mm-hmm. um, we market a lot of rice, cherries, almonds, walnuts, um, and are working in quite a few more innovative farming practices. Um, including regenerative, um, re- in regenerative farming, upcycling, um, upcycling manufacturing, and what, and it's typically under the veil of sustainability. Um, and so we really, we have a great team here that can help tell those stories so that if a farmer is has decided to take the initiative to farm in a different kind of manner, they ideally should be getting a better return. They should be getting um, a higher return because it's more expensive to do so. And they potentially might be compromising some yield. Yeah, I agree with you. Let's uh, explore a couple of the words you said there. Let's start with regenerative ag and then let's go to upcycling 
and explain those very commonly used words in the ag industry. But uh, to people that are urban dwellers and don't have exposure to ag much, let's let's start with what does regenerative ag mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, Greg, part of my reason that I even have this company is because I was an ermit dweller for a long time in New York, <laughs> and I had a lot of, all of my friends were very smart and accomplished, and, and I could just tell they really didn't know anything about their food system. They didn't know where their food came from or how it got there, and that was part of my aha moment, like, you know what, I got to focus here, and there needs to be a marketing agency that can actually educate these folks, so. That is part of my reason for being, but so to answer your question, what is regenerative agriculture? So I would say there's typically, and I'm going to kind of quote the, I would say the regenerative um, organic certification um, affectionately referred to as the rock is definitely um, kind of the, I would say the leading certification at the moment. And, and that's um, really caring about soil health and land management. How well do you actually care for the soil? Um, animal welfare, what kind of existence do the animals have? And then social fairness, which, which is also kind of referred to as social responsibility. And that's probably along the lines of how, how well do you take care of your employees and what kind of wage and living, um, you know, living, living wage do they have or benefits or whatnot. Um, and here's the thing, if you really are going to focus on um, growing regeneratively or accomplishing the rock certification, you've got to be a heck of a farmer. I mean, mm -hmm. truly, if you've got a problem, you have to figure it out. And that, and by figuring it out, it typically doesn't mean, um, you know, throwing on a chemical to kind of do the trick or antibiotics or whatnot. So, um, just speaking for, for permanent crops, like we have a lot where I am in the central Valley, almonds and walnuts and citrus and, cherries and whatnot that probably means like this the land use like is it do we have great cover crops are we um, putting animals through are we making temporary um, pasture land during certain times of the month or in that orchard it's really um, making making every effort to utilize kind of natural um, natural um, biologicals and, and, um, and the, in animals and, and, and pest control is very challenging too, uh, when you are, uh, when you're regenerative. So it's really, it's really, uh, it's really a very, very intellectual way to farm, which is interesting because I think it's the original way we farmed, right? Before yeah, right. we had, yeah. before we had chemicals. So, um, there, there's lots of, there's, and in California, we have so, such an issue with the drought. There's also lots of, um, there's lots of advocacy for regenerative farming for the cover crops, because it actually, I think there's data around um, showing that you can actually absorb more of that, of the water. Yeah, I had a um, bean producer on a uh, farmer, and I asked him why he grew beans. And he said, well, um, I, they're actually a soil fixer, because I grow field corn uh, yeah. a lot, but I and can't grow nitrogen every year because uh, yeah. I deplete the soil. So I grow pinto beans Absolutely. because yeah. it puts more nitrogen, nitrogen. back in the nitrogen. soil and uses less mm -hmm. inputs, you know, so mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. people don't know, you know, beans are actually really good for the environment. Um, what about no-till crops? Is that a, is that a thing in the uh, mm -hmm. Central Valley? Oh, I would say that in permanent crops, it's a little bit more challenging. Um, so I, I would say 
there isn't a lot of till unless you're pulling out an orchard because then you would pull it out and mulch it and whatnot. Then there's till. So like in regenerative, um, in a regenerative process, they would probably argue like the least amount. There's also a lot of information um, that's kind of being shared around like the depth of the till. So mm -hmm. do you need to rip by five feet? Can you rip by 18 inches? For example, um, mm -hmm. I do know that in, in produce, that's a big question as, um, you know, strawberries, for example, in California, that's a, that's a three, that's growing, they have three crops a year. So tilling is part of their, um, you know, is a year round initiative. And I do know that like in produce, you probably, in order to grow regeneratively, you would do that the least amount of times as possible and also the least amount of depth. Mm-hmm. So that the so the topsoil stays in more more intact. Yeah, I think uh, no-till cropping is uh, because there's monocrops here in Colorado with field corn and around the whole corn belt too. Um, it's a bigger thing here, and you know I go to these ag meetings where there's a lot of corn farmers, and someone will come in from somewhere and talk about no-till, and <clears throat> you know they usually are pretty hesitant to want to try that at first because they don't really have never done it that way, right? So um, I find that sometimes the the next generation, the, the grandkids who are a little younger might be more open to try that. Um, do, you, mm -hmm. do you find that, that that the younger farmers maybe taking over the farm from their dad or mom or their granddad are usually a little more open to regenerative ideas? Probably because, you know, they're not, they're probably more open to change and likely, um, haven't been the ones to to make the investments for the equipment and whatnot. So the other thing is, and you know, a lot of work that we do is in agriculture is in educating farmers and, and reaching farmers. Our clients will hire, we do a ton of work in ag technology and they'll hire us. They're like, how do we get the right kind of customers? Help us find the right growers. And we like to say, there's B2B marketing, there's B2C marketing, and we do B2G also, right? Mm -hmm. So business to grower. And, um, you know, baby boomers are terming out, right? They are, they're um, retiring now. And so those deals that they did maybe with a handshake uh, worked for decades. And now maybe next generation likes to receive their information through printed information or newsletters, or they actually like to hold a paper. And then next generation down, maybe they're more like an email kind of guy. Like I want to receive my information email. And then potentially maybe you're more Gen Z's or we want to see it on social media. What's happened is how people do due diligence. And that's where I think our our agency is thriving now because we have a really keen understanding of that nuance and what's challenging and which is, I think our hardest days on the job are explaining that and getting somebody who's been doing marketing for their, typically for their processor mill for the same way for 50 years to get them to kind of see that no consumers don't buy. This is not how grocery shopping works anymore. There's, there's more online. We have to invest in this experience. If they can't Google you, they're not going to buy you. Things like that. So um, the whole industry is changing, and I just feel pretty blessed to work in it, quite frankly. Yeah. Don't, don't you think that that online direct-to-consumer or um, possibly bypassing the traditional big box retail store is, is a good thing in that um, I work with a lot of buyers of national chains, and um, they don't always appreciate the fact that it costs more to produce food that's grown regeneratively. And sometimes they buy on price because they sell on price and Absolutely. You know, it's a business. So 
I mean, I have friends that raise organic produce and it's very hard for them to get <laughs> what they need for organic watermelons, organic cantaloupes, organic pinto beans, because uh, at retail, it just, it just doesn't have the margin they need. Right. So. Right. Right. It's a very, it's a very specific, it's a very specific consumer. And I think one of the biggest travesties in the industry, and this is why I think associations are uh, getting a run for their money these days more than ever is because farmers need consumer insights, particularly if you're a row crop farmer, you need consumer insights. Should I do watermelons this year or should we do strawberries? Are we going to, you know, should we do what should we plan on the open ground? It's a it's a conversation that my family's having right now because we're at the end of January, right? And that's where if there was more data from consumer insights and consumer trends that farmers had access to, they might make different decisions. They might decide, you know what, we're gonna we're gonna um, we're gonna transition to organic. We're gonna take advantage of one of these grants that are out there, and we're gonna compromise our yield, and we're gonna give it a go based on this data. And that information is just not out there readily for farmers. Yeah, I agree. I have a friend that grows watermelons and um, on his own, he figured out that consumers like the smaller watermelons better than the big ones and he could get more yeah. for the smaller yeah. ones, better margins. So now he's grown predominantly smaller watermelons, you know. But Greg, don't you think that he, as a partner in the business, don't you think that his packer should have explained that to him? Well, you would have hoped so. Um, yeah, but you know, there's just a disconnect sometimes that exists on these channels. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Hey, let's talk about um, some terms that um, you and I use, but uh, want to help our listeners understand. You said permanent crop. Let's mm. explain what that means. Sure. Permanent crop is a citrus tree, a nut tree, um, anything that's grown as a tree. So for example, an almond, the longevity of an almond tree is typically 20. I would say they kind of, they hit, hit their stride about year seven on seven, seventh leaf or eighth leaf. Um, they can continue to produce for 20 to 25 years, but probably once you get into the teens, they're, uh, they're, they probably cost more to keep them alive than the yield you're going to get. Um, perennial crop, meaning like an asparagus where you're going to get two or three harvests off of the same, off the same bushel and then row crop, of course, um, we're all familiar with. Right. Right. Okay, good. And then also oh, and vines and, and vines. I'm oh. so sorry. Obviously no. grapevines, the grapevines being probably one of the most obvious, uh, permanent crops. And then yeah. at, um, farmer producer meetings and the USDA, they use another term called uh, specialty crops. What is a specialty crop mm -hmm. mean? Specialty crops are, well, for sure, they're not subsidized in any way. Um, they are crops that um, are, I mean, really, I don't know what the actual technical term is, but they're not, they're not grown, um, they're not subsidized, and they are typically grown in smaller lots and typically need a very specific type of weather. Um, so for us in California, we, um, 400 specialty crops are marketed. So that would be your berries, your almonds, um, rice. We do a ton of work in the rice industry and love it. Um, citrus, carrots, produce, that's more your specialty crop. And aren't those crops a little more risky to grow because if there's a catastrophic, a catastrophic weather problem like a drought or 
a hailstorm, mm -hmm. they don't they don't have crop insurance, mm -hmm. correct? We have crop insurance. Oh, you can good. get crop insurance. Yeah, you okay. can get crop insurance. Um, I, I mean, it could even not. It can't for for special, some specialty crops. Like it can even be like not catastrophic. You know, like if you've got cherries and it in California or in Washington too, um, and it is, it's it's May and you even just have a couple misty days, you're going to have a mold problem. So it's not even, it's not even like a torrential downstorm that can really do it, but, um, the, it is risky. It's, and that's where I say like, gosh, farmers are so resilient. And I just think like they get such a bad rap for kind of being stuck in their ways. And I'm like, of course they're stuck in their ways. Think of the risk they're putting out every year. My gosh, who else takes out multi-million dollar loans every year and doesn't actually know if they're going to be able to pay them back. Yeah. Or maybe loses money one year out of three or four, you know, and has a, Absolutely. a year where they they lost everything they made last year and the year before, but they're still in it. They have to have pretty thick skin and be pretty risk averse, you know. So, a hundred percent, and that's and that's the job. We got to tell that story. Um, I don't think that I don't think all farmers are stuck in their ways. I think farmers are take calculated risks every day. Sure, sure. Um, what as as you've kind of um, you know worked in this industry your whole life, you're a a multi-generation, mm -hmm. fifth-generation farmer. What what changes do you think are needed in the way we grow food? I think the, the main changes that are needed is that we need to stop just selling imperfect produce. Mm. I would say that is main one. You know, if you go to the grocery store in Europe, or really, actually, let's be honest, anywhere else in the world other than maybe North America. You're going to see apples that are a little different sizes. You're going to see produce that looks different. And maybe there might be some bites on it. You know, what, whatever, you know, there might be like, but the color is going to be a little different because it's natural, it's supposed to be different. And I think that here and domestically, it's like, we just expect everything to look the same, right? Which means there's waxes used. And it means that we also leave a lot of fruit out there in the orchard or out there in the field. Um, and that's why we're working on upcycling. But uh, I do think that consumer preferences and under, consumers being educated about the, the nutritional value of food and not just the aesthetic is really critical. Yeah, I had um, as a guest on a recent episode of Food Chat, uh, a food bank, and they go around to all the uh, grocery stores and pick up the produce that wouldn't sell. A lot of it's imperfect. They also go directly to the growers and buy mm -hmm. all of their imperfect produce that the local mm -hmm. big super mm -hmm. chain retailer won't take because they don't look good enough. <laughs> so. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I also think there's a lot of proactive, like biologicals. We're talking a lot about biologicals here in specialty crop. Biologicals really have a place. And that's really like, we've got to make sure the microbials of the soil are still healthy. So I think that as I think chemicals are under a microscope. I know in California, the Department of Pesticide Regulation put out the 2050 Sustainability Roadmap to try to eradicate chemical use by 2050. You know, there's a lot to be said there. Like that toolkit that farmers have is going to change and that it, there will be investment. So what should happen is food should cost more because it will cost more to farm. And if we don't really start educating at scale, I... I think that what's going to happen is we're going to put American farmers out of business and we're just going to import all of our food from China and 
India and everywhere else. So I, I think that's where I just find such a mission in, in communicating the educational component because we can't all be local boars, right? Like many of your listeners are in urban cities and they can't go out to their backyard and pick whatever, you know, pick fruit off their own tree. So that's where we have to make sure that we provide enough information so that uh, people can make good choices that, like I said earlier, align with their values. Yeah, I mean, I've tried growing uh, uh, lemon trees and avocado trees and walnut trees here in Colorado, but uh, it just not, doesn't not, work. Not so good. Uh, not last so good. week was uh, below zero, so you know it didn't work. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So you know, winter- that's also a f- let's also be honest. That's a food safety risk. Sure. Right. Yeah. Like you might be poisoning yourself for goodness' sake. Like yeah, that's there. We need to remember that. But I mean, one thing we haven't talked about is vertical and indoor farming. Like mm-hmm. that will, sh- that will and should shift the shift the access that we all that um, people have. Now, if they're going to be able to afford it, is another thing. Or if they want to invest in that as part of their budget, is those are two different things. Yeah, the majority of tomatoes that you'd find in a Colorado retail mm-hmm. store are grown at a vertical indoor farm right now. There's mm-hmm. a few of them in Denver. So, yeah. mm, yep. Um, let's just talk about one more term before I let you go. Uh, upcycling. That's a very yeah. commonly used word in ag, but what, uh-huh. what does it mean? Mm. Well, I think upcycling at the moment means uh, a lot, lot of different things. There's not one tried and true definition, but upcycling t- typically takes something that would have potentially been food loss not food waste, but food loss, and finds a different use for it. So the project that we're working on with a client called Sierra Agra USA in Fowler, California, they are buying fruit from local farmers, whether it's stone fruit, citrus, they're fruit agnostic and veggie agnostic, celery from Duda, for example. Um, They'll be buying that and then they put it through their manufacturing process and they're able to extract um, and utilize that fruit that would have otherwise been waste or gone to grade out or cattle feed or silage or whatnot. They're actually able to pay the farmers for that and the labor it takes to harvest that maybe imperfect piece of produce or imperfect piece of citrus um, or something that's under the tree maybe. And they're able to wash it and um, pull out juice, extract, um, essences, fragrance, oils from this and utilize it in another way that would have otherwise not happened. Um, And so that is really, that's a trend that I think we're going to see across the board. And I think we're going to see just more resourcefulness in that. Yeah. Um, in my world here in Colorado, there's a lot of cattle production and upcycling might mean uh, food that would go to waste that they allow the cattle to eat. Like, for example, mm. distillers grains that you know are no mm. good for people. There's no nutrient value for a human, but cattle could produce that into turn that into protein, you know, and mm. uh, and other crops, mm-hmm. too. So, um, mm-hmm. Ellie, um, we're almost to the end of our time here on Food Chat, but I want to give you um, just a minute or two to tell your listeners more about Noble West and then how they can learn more about you and how they can connect with you and follow you. Oh, thanks, Greg. Our website at wearenoblewest.com or I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. That's a play. That's a water cooler for me. Just look me up at Allie Cox plus Noble West. Um, and then you can also follow us on Instagram or LinkedIn as well uh, at we are Noble West. But really thank you, Greg. You're highlighting 
just a wide swath of um, a wide swath of um, of ag issues. And I, I do love I actually love the name of your podcast. I love that we're t- calling it food and we're mm-hmm. not just calling this ag because I so strongly believe that until the ag industry truly considers themselves part of the food industry, we're probably going to be a little we're going to we're values won't align. Right. Farmers yeah. get paid on yield. Consumers, consumers don't necessarily just want that. Um, they, that's not something that they uh, that that can align with sort of their purchasing power. Ali, thanks so much. I've enjoyed talking to you here on Food Chat. And you know, our goal, our mission is to help consumers know where their food comes from, reconnect people to their food. So you've been a big uh, contributor to that today. Thank you very much. Thanks, Greg. In the spring, the turn from green to bad harvest honey. Hold one up for the banker downtown. They got him on his feet with handshake.